0: I'm Peter Biello. This hour, a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage with author Kevin Kwan. His new novel, Sex and Vanity, is the story of Lucy, a half-Chinese, half-white woman who is engaged to be married to one man but finds herself drawn to another. It's a novel about romance, wealth, and race. Before we got into the discussion of the novel, though, we had something else to discuss on the virtual stage. On this virtual stage, uh, we can see each other and... I wanted to ask you about clothing first before we dive into your novel because you fe- your novels feature so many people who are very conscious of the designers that we were wearing. So I can see what you're wearing, uh, but I, I, I am not the type of person to identify a designer on site. I don't know if if you
1: are that type of person. Can can you do that? Um, you know, I can do it in other people, but <laughs> never on myself. <laughs> never never on yourself. And okay. um I actually that make it a habit of never wearing logos. Um, of course, I'm saying that I'm wearing logos logo today. There, but and I, I but can't hopefully, it's, a not, it's a not recognizable logo. And I, um, it's funny. I went shopping for the first time last week. In like person, I went into a store in person, um, and you know, it's it's a store I've I've long, you know, been a, been a patron of. And so it's just so nice to see everyone and the amazing sales lady who I have known for many many years. You know, she she talked me into buying this shirt. And I was like, but I don't wear logos, <laughs> and here I am. But it's super comfortable.
0: Well, great. I'm uh, glad you're comfortable. All well, that's important. Yes. <laughs> right. We're, and we're really. So, <laughs> but I'm not so going to name drop. Me. So, okay. <laughs> Apologies. I didn't I didn't know if you yeah. if you were if you would, um, but I had to ask because the, the 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 characters in your book they seem so knowledgeable about designers, about food, about architecture. Well, we'll get to all of that, but I, but I do want to start by talking about some of the main things in your new novel, uh, *Sex and Vanity*. Uh, one of the big things, of course, about this novel is that it pays tribute to uh, one of your favorite novels, uh, *A Room with a View*. Uh, and I was I wanted to ask you about w- why you decided to um, uh, address the themes you address uh, while also paying tribute to this novel.
1: You know, in a way, it was a book that's been kind of writing itself in my mind over the past ten years. Um, Capri is an island that I've been fortunate enough to visit um, numerous times. And every time I went there, I sort of fantasized about sort of what could I write about this island that would be true to me, that would be interesting to me. Um, And at some point, about 10 years ago, I had a eureka moment where I was like, wait a minute. I could sort of do an homage to a room of view and take one of my favorite novels of all time. You know, I read it when I was 15 years old and reset it on the island of Capri. And, you know, let's see what happens when I plant a character here in 2015. You know, what is her life like? And what are her struggles compared to the original Lucy of E.M. Forster's novel in 1908? So it became a fun thought experiment for me that sort of evolved. And I would keep building the story, you know, every time I returned to Capri, usually in the summertime. And I would witness all the summer romances blossoming amongst the young teenagers. Um, you know, it's, um, it was fun. It was fun to just have this folly, and it turned into sex and vanity.
0: Mm-hmm. And the, the character at the center of your novel, Lucy, one of the things uh, that challenges her throughout the novel is uh, the question of her identity, the fact that she is uh, uh, bi- biracial, she's part white and part Chinese, and that keeps coming up in, in little ways. Uh, what drew you to this aspect of your your character, Lucy?
1: I felt that you know, looking at a character who is Hapa, you know, that's the Hawaiian word that is is I think um, the preferred term these days for a lot of Hapas, um, was something that was very little written about. First of all, and I have many friends and and relatives actually, family members who are Hapa, and I've sort of watched them grow up. I've I've watched um, you know their individual struggles um, to find themselves. In an increasingly globalized society, in you know in 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 families that are increasingly blended, and I, I just felt it was kind of the next step in my evolution as a writer. You know, the Quasi Rotations trilogy took place um, in Asia um, with an all Asian cast, even in my book, <laughs> not just in the movie, and. This next trilogy beginning of sex and vanity i wanted to explore what it was like for asians living outside of asia asians living in the west and what better way to kick that off with a character who is truly just you know symbolic of the collision between east and west
0: Mm -hmm. uh i'm interested too in in the way these characters think about their identities because rachel in in crazy rich asians uh she was American-born Chinese, so she had this um, American identity, but uh, people seemed to have different expectations of her once she went over to Singapore. And something similar seems to happen with Lucy. Like people sometimes don't know what to make of her, and she finds herself having to explain herself in ways that really are cumbersome to her, to put it mildly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think in many ways I sort of specialize in outsiders with my protagonists. Um, you know, Rachel really was a fish out of water um, the minute she went to Singapore and was immersed in this other world, you know, of of an Asia she never imagined possible. And with Lucy, she's felt like a fish out of water since the day she was born. You know, um, here she is living in America, born in America, um, embraced and loved, of course, by her family on both sides. But she feels, I think, in many ways, um, torn between two families, two cultures. Um, and she, you know, she's a mess when we first meet her.
0: Mm -hmm. And how do you think that she, she views the both sides of her family and does she lean towards one or the other? Is it possible to even say that she, she could lean towards one side or the other?
1: Well, the interesting thing about Lucy is that she presents as looking slightly more Um, Her her Chinese features are a little more dominant than her Caucasian features. So she presents as looking more Chinese or more Asian. Um, But the strange thing about how she was brought up was that her mother really sort of steered her um, towards her father's side of the family. You know, she really paid deference to this very waspy, blue blood, um, Park Avenue, Manhattan family. And sublimated her identity, sublimated her Asianness, um, to really kind of, you know, allow her children to bond more with the husband's side. Um, and, and so therein lies the problem with, with Lucy. She's always been sort of torn apart in a way that she can't quite understand. And I think that kind of, you know, the interesting thing about being Hoppe is that there is no monolithic biracial experience. Right, it's it's so dependent on how you were raised, how your parents raised you, what they value, and so I wanted to look at the nuances of that.
0: And it, and it's so interesting too. If I'm remembering this correctly, uh, late in *Sex and Vanity*, uh, Lucy's mother kind of uh, says, you, you, "I I steered you this way on purpose. I wanted to be a cool mom. You're you're welcome." Like what a, what an interesting thing to say to your child about how they how they. Structure their childhood. I wonder, since you mentioned that that some of your friends had gone through similar, uh, I, I guess you could call it a search for identity. Um, is that something that that you heard among your friends?
1: Absolutely. And you know, I think with Lucy's mom, in in you know, in her her story, she grew up with the typical Asian tiger mother. You know, she was expected from a very early age to adhere to. All you know, the hopes and dreams of her parents, and and she she did fulfill many of them. She became a doctor and a scientist, and a very successful successful and well regarded one. But I think she, in her own way, reveled, Right? She moved to New York. She met Lucy's father. She married a white dude, um, and she really wanted to go the opposite route with her kids, which is what I see happens so much <laughs> um, with with. People I know with parents I know, you know, they're they're either mimicking what their parents did or they're trying to do the opposite, and um, it it all has its consequences. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You mentioned that you you're good at writing the outsider. Uh, it seems like uh, to to compare, I guess, Lucy to to Rachel Chu is that Lucy is is. In in some ways, less of an outsider when it comes to wealth. Like when she's surrounded by these people, she she recognizes the wealth. She's not as caught up in it as the other people around her seem to be. Which is the key to what makes this so funny is that she can see the the kind of weirdness about money that other people experience. Um, but uh, I, I'm wondering if you if you design it that way to make sure that there is someone in this novel that is. Relatable and down to earth that the average reader who is not a millionaire or a billionaire can can
1: identify with. Very much so, and I also really wanted to pivot away from crazy rich Asians. You know, I, I wrote this trilogy that was just kind of dripping. <laughs> it was it was gilded in every possible way. You know, in its exuberant celebration of of wealth and money, and. I, I really wanted to pivot away from that. Uh, you know, Lucy comes from privilege. She's been raised, you know, under extremely privileged circumstances, and she knows that. But that's not her story. That you know, that's beside the point. You know, she she, she happens to have been born into, you know, a upper side, affluent, old money family. So those are her mores. Um, that's what she knows, and she's very comfortable in that way of life. And that way of thinking, and so her social radar, as far as that concern, is is pretty darn good, but everything else is a bit (laughs) off kilter. What do you mean by that, uh, off kilter? We need her when she's eighteen years old. So I I think you know, along with the challenges of growing up Hoppo, in the U.S., she is an eighteen-year-old girl growing up in the present culture, um, the social media-dominated culture, um, the, the culture where beauty is portrayed a certain way. So there's all these pressures on her, you know, and within her social group, but within the larger American culture and Western culture to conform. And she innately does not fit in, you know, she's in this waspy, rarefied, cool New York world. And she's an Asian girl in appearance. So therein lies much of the existential conflict.
0: And is there pressure on her to not date an Asian guy? At one point, she she finds herself being really drawn to George, but at the same time says to herself, I don't date Asian guys, that's not who I am. Um, is she responding to an external pressure?
1: She very much is, um, an external and a subliminal pressure that's been placed on her you know, since the day she was born. Um, in you know, in so many of the sort of very just offhand comments that she's heard over and over again, her whole life, you know, um, comments that are unintentionally racist that her own grandmother makes towards her, you know, calling her "my little china doll," um, for example, and then her, her cousin at one point, I'm going to misquote myself here, you know, um, but Charlotte, her cousin, who we also meet early in the book, um, rape not Rachel, (laughs) Lucy clearly remembers, you know, a comment she once made about George um, about, Oh my goodness, you know, you're going to date this guy. Well, you're never going to get into this club, you know, as a result. Um, And to her, it's, it's, it's such um, a painful remark. And when we flash forward four years later, Charlotte has absolutely no memory of saying that. Hmm. And I feel that that's, you know, all too real people, People speak out of turn. People just say what they mean, especially within families, and you don't realize sometimes, you know, that what you say can really hurt.
0: Mm-hmm. So she's absorbed all these messages, all these microaggressions, and and it and it's it's churning beneath the surface and really giving her a hard time.
1: It is, and and that's why she decides to act the way she does in the novel. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and um, is is so reckless in her feelings and emotions and, and behavior, but um, I, I really tried to, as best as I could, you know, sort of get into the mind of someone of her age going through what she's going through, you know, with all the baggage that comes with it.
0: You're listening to a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage with novelist Kevin Kwan. After a quick break, we'll talk more about the character of Lucy and how Kwan manages to keep the reader's interest as Lucy's behavior becomes morally questionable. I'm Peter Biello. This is NHPR. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Peter Biello, and this is a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. Today, as recorded on our virtual stage last month, novelist Kevin Kwan— we're speaking about his latest novel Sex and Vanity and about that novel's protagonist Lucy. Let's get back to that conversation. As a reader, I felt like I could uh follow most of her actions until it gets very close to the end where she is um a couple of things that she did that 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 put some distance in between me and Lucy. And and one of the, one of the things that she I can't did... wait to hear. Her. <laughs> Well, and I'm curious to hear how you anticipated and navigated that for as as a writer, uh, knowing that your readers may pull away at this point. There's one point where she kind of misrepresents what happened between her and George uh, to her cousin. And then she's confronted about it and she doubles down and she's mean. That kind of pushed me away from her. And then there's another point by the way uh listeners i'm not giving the plot away uh there's there's another
1: yeah you're doing a very good job by the way <laughs> i have to say you know you're, you're skirting the surface we're trying to <laughs> I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to ruin the novel for yes, peter has not given any spoilers and i'm very impressed that he's able to do that um
0: sorry go ahead th- thank you um the the, and the other thing that she did is that she tries to sabotage uh george's mother's application to live in a particular her apartment building essentially because she really wants to keep george away so she's really Really meddling with these people in in ways that that are that are pretty abhorrent and so i'm sure you knew that this might cause some readers to recoil and i'm wondering how you anticipated that and how you made that balance work
1: absolutely i did and um you know i have a lot of affection for lucy as a character but of course readers some readers might not feel the same and um I remember actually there was a comment that um, I, I rarely, you know, read the, the comments on social media, but but this one someone sent to me because it was so funny, and this reader said, you know, I hate read this book. I hate read every page of it because I couldn't stand Lucy from the start, and the you know the more and more we went along, the more I couldn't stand her, and I finally just just threw the book across the room. And she mentioned one of the occasions of of when she did that and that was when lucy was you know lying about george and here again i say lucy is a messed up person (laughs) you know she is a reckless messed up person um and i was trying to just you know this is an external manifestation of the crazy turmoil that exists within her the self-denial she's denying all her feelings she's denying her emotions and She's seeing and she's feeling the terror of oh my god this man that I'm so attracted to, um, but I'm that I'm trying to push away. His mom is moving into my building, you know, which means I'll be seeing him every day, and I have to spend the rest of my life every day in denial of my true feelings. You know, this is all happening on a subconscious level, of course. So she's making herself go crazy. But the other thing that's happening here, um, which I wish I could just reach out to to all the commentators that makes certain, you know, plot point comments. The one thing about this book is it's an homage to A Room of a View. So in many ways, I'm playing a game. I'm having a conversation with this book that I love and paying tribute to it. And so the plot point actually follows very closely what happens in A Room of the View. Ian e. Forster's Lucy is lying like crazy about her, George, to everyone and making stuff up all the time stuff that makes him seem far worse than he is and so i was trying to do that in my own modern reinvention
0: so do you think oh, she there. she yeah. um demonstrates i guess enough vulnerability uh to to compensate for for those errors in other words she's not so privileged that we will say you know she's so powerful she's got the world at her feet uh why is she also doing this to this poor guy we 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 look at her instead and say, "If I'm if I'm understanding you correctly, she's really struggling.
1: Like, yeah, she's rich, but who? She's going through a tough time. I'm hoping people see that, and I'm also hoping people are are in for the laugh and the comedy of it all, because you know, let's not take this too seriously. You know, like Rosemary Zhao, the mother of George, is trying to get into a you know very exclusive condo building." You know, she, she's probably going to pay $25 million for an apartment. Like, these are not people we need to feel sorry for on any level. You know, um, if she can't get that apartment, she will find another. Trust me. She already you know, has so, a few
0: places to live.
1: Yeah, exactly. She yeah. already has five residences here. So, you know, this is satire. And this is, you know, kind of, you know, it's I'm really having fun with... <laughs> hopefully, and hopefully people are along for the ride. And hopefully I've balanced it enough so... You know, you don't hate read this book, and you don't hate Lucy through the whole book. And um, certainly, I've heard from other readers who actually adore Lucy. So it's. I think every reader brings their experience into it, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, of and, course. And maybe there's something about Lucy that that really triggers you. Let's talk about that, Peter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I should say that I was I was with her for uh, most of the novel, yeah. and with with those two exceptions. Um, I will say with the second exception, the apartment thing, the the way she goes about it is hilarious. I'm not going to give that away. I couldn't possibly do it. You just got to read the book to to get it because it is funny. Maybe the humor is what kept me with her during that moment. Like, yeah, she's doing an awful thing, but she's really funny about it. So,
1: um, so that's she's great. in a desperate situation for herself, in mm-hmm. her mind. Yes, you know, she's going in circles and she's finding any way out. and she does something that is just, supremely not nice <laughs> Yeah, you know um but hopefully we forgive her in, in the end
0: yeah well I, or maybe I mean, we don't I, i'm not up with your friend who hate read this book or hate read yeah. because of lucy i didn't hate read it at all i was with lucy very early in the book in part because she's surrounded by these people who are just not they're they don't honor her as a person they're just kind of moving her around as a as a thing almost like cecil is kind of rude to her mom and and treating her like a set piece and charlotte is is not as helpful as she thinks she is and so she seems like uh the underdog very early in the novel and that's kind of what kept me with her
1: i'm i'm relieved (laughs)
0: <laughs> so that by the time those things happen, I'm like, okay, she's been through a lot. So, yeah. um, well, what you're describing is—it seems like a very tricky thing to pull off. Now, I know you say you don't read social media, so I, 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 I'm almost sorry to, to, to bring this part up, but I did want to mention it to you because I disagree with what this person said completely. And it's a—it's a—it's a reviewer who mentioned on one of your previous books, I—I uh, I just wish it had a little more ambition. Um, now first of all, since you're poking so much fun at snobbery, I mean, what could be more snobby than a literary critic saying, I wish this book was something it isn't, you know? But second of all... Which book
1: were they referring to? I think they were wondering. referring
0: to uh, Rich People Problems. Okay. Um, Interesting. Which, okay. I don't know. But but what you're describing here about what you attempted to do in Sex and Vanity sounds very ambitious to me. Yeah, Like you're, you're trying to make readers sympathize with a very wealthy character uh, who has, she, she's she's got a lot of power, she's got a lot of social capital, but we still feel for her and we feel for her very deeply. And that seems very ambitious to me. So I just, all that is to say, I was curious about what you think about having an ambition for a novel, what novel should
1: aspire to be. I'm always trying to challenge myself as a writer, you know, book after book, um, I'm always trying to really kind of um, spread my wings and and really kind of delve into new thick territory. You know, which is which is why with *Sex and Vanity*, I really wanted to try my hand at the homage, the literary homage. You know, and to me, that seemed like a fun challenge um, to take a book that some that, that that generations of readers have loved so much. Like, do I dare do this? You know, and and I did ask myself that question many times. Like, how dare I? try to do this, you know? But at some point I just decided to go for it, right? And I, I do find that also with my portrayal of characters and, and how I sketch them out, I'm also trying to create complicated characters, you know, who aren't just facades. Um, so it's it's not my place to, to sort of judge whether I've succeeded. It's really the readers or the reviewers, and I think everyone has a <laughs> has a different opinion, as you can see. Um, you know, I I'm very happy with Rich People Problems. I, I thought, to me, that was the most layered, the deepest, the most emotional, and and the the richest quote unquote of the of the books. And I felt like I truly challenged myself and and was trying to be ambitious. I'm I'm sorry I wasn't ambitious enough for this critic. Well,
0: I, and I only mention it because the, the, the question of, of literary ambition from, from the high yeah. literary types, uh, it, these are books about snobbery in some ways. And to say mm-hmm. that it's not ambitious enough kind of misses the point. Like you're kind of, you are, if you're not saying this is not ambitious enough, then yeah. you are the subject of this satire.
1: <laughs> there, there is something uniquely funny about that, isn't there? Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. What do you think about your books being considered
1: beach reads? I consider it a compliment in many ways um, that someone would take my book um, and bring it along to the beach because I, I think beach time is so precious, right? So if, if they've chosen my book to, to spend the day with, I consider that really a compliment. Mm-hmm. So I love a good beach read. Um, you know, for me, it's, it's usually something nonfiction, <laughs> usually very current affairs related.
0: Yeah, um, I, I heard in a podcast yeah. that that you tended to read a lot more nonfiction than fiction. Is that still true?
1: Absolutely. Um, I, I would say the majority of what I read is nonfiction. Um, it's it's for me it's very hard to commit to a world that's been invented by a fiction author. So you know, to, to me it's the highest compliment when anyone actually reads my book.
0: Well, sometimes when writers say that they they don't read uh, fiction while they are writing fiction, it's because they don't want to be influenced style-wise or, or setting-wise, but that's not the case for you, it seems like. That's not the
1: case, yeah. I just, I've always sort of veered more towards um, nonfiction, although I do really do enjoy fiction, you know, now and then.
0: Mm-hmm. What nonfiction um, are you reading?
1: What, I just finished um, Barbara Amiel's um, memoir, the Canadian journalist, and she was also, she's is also the, the wife of, of um, Conrad Black, and um, she really sort of very candidly reveals, you know, her life and times and and all the struggles she's had over six, seven decades being in the public eye and especially what happened when her husband was, you know, caught up in a big financial scandal. They were at the top of sort of international high society and then they were struck down and, um, you know, the betrayals and the people that just completely cut them cold. Um, it was it was a fascinating read, you know, um, thanks to her her honesty, I think, and her ability to really just kind of speak her truth and also look at herself in a critical way and also just tell a good story. She's a great writer. Mm-hmm. So recently that was one I read. Another book I read was um, The Princess Spy by Larry Loftus, I believe that's the name of the author. Um, and he re-examines the life of Aline, the Countess of Romanones. She was an American girl growing up in you know, a suburb of New York that became a spy during World War II um, and was sent to Spain, served in the OSS, and then married into Spanish aristocracy.
0: So when you set out to become a writer, were, were you first interested in something other than fiction or was fiction the first thing you loved?
1: I really was completely in love of poetry. So when I studied literature and creative writing, my focus was in writing poetry, contemporary poetry, experimental poetry. Um, that's what I loved the most. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I was, yeah, I actually did go to grad school for one semester and then um, withdrew and moved to New York.
0: Mm-hmm. Grad school, like an MFA? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was going to do, you know, concentration in, in, in poetry.
0: In poetry, okay. Yeah. But life took you elsewhere.
1: Life veered way <laughs> off course. <laughs> um, you know, there was always, um, for me, there was always a struggle between the literary side and the visual side. So even while I was in school studying creative writing and journalism, I was taking photography classes and video mm-hmm. classes. And, you know, there was always this itch to go to art school and fulfill that side of myself. So I decided, you know, um, midway, well, not not even midway into my first semester of grad school, um, studying creative writing, I decided I needed to go to art school and try something very different. And I thought, you know, this will actually help me as a writer in the long run. Um, And it actually happened. It did. It truly did. You know, having a 15-year adventure in New York, working in the design visual industry, actually, I think, informed me and, and really helped me to write my first novel in 2013, Crazy Rich Asians.
0: In, in what ways did it help you? I think
1: the art school and visual education you know, helped me to see in a whole new way. And having that visual knowledge allowed me to create cinematic scenes as a writer. And, of course, my writing is filled with... Design and art, and names and brands and and so much of that you know comes from working in that those industries um, for fifteen years.
0: Mm -hmm. I believe we did have a question from someone in the audience about how you knew uh, so many designers and so much about Mm -hmm. art. So it seems like that's that's the answer. That's where that comes from.
1: That is the answer. I I was a design consultant, and I worked for publishers. I worked for um, design companies. I worked for. Um, actually, fashion clients as well, and, and magazines, um, and that was what I did. Did you enjoy that? I absolutely loved it. When you are creative directing a project, you know, when you're producing a book, for example, it's it's very collaborative. So you're working with photographers and art directors and graphic designers and writers, and I loved sort of being the field marshal of projects and being able to communicate both of the visual teams and the text teams because I could do both. I could understand what the writers are trying to do, but I could also communicate with the graphics people and and bridge all the gaps. And so had a lot of fun, fun adventures, you know, great projects, great people, great clients. That is something I, I do miss.
0: So how did you decide to leave something that you really liked to dedicate yourself to writing novels?
1: Well, I didn't really leave it. You, did, um, you didn't leave it? At that point I did not. You know, I I was um I was still, you know, working, doing consulting when I started just trying to write crazy votations. And that was truly just a labor of love. It was a hobby. And I worked on it in my spare time, you know, over a two-year period. Um, never expecting it to ever be published, quite frankly. Um, but then, you know something happened along the way, (laughs) it found a publisher, it got published and um, its success, you know, sort of compelled the publishers to say to me, Hey, we need a, we need book two and you have a year to write it. (laughs) Um, So I, I stopped, you know, I was actually in the middle of some client projects uh, and I had to hit pause and sort of withdraw from a few projects and say, you know, I, I'm afraid I have to go write a book and they've given me only a year. (laughs) <laughs> so it became a full-time job then subsequently you know, just kept on snowballing you know after book two came out they wanted book three immediately and um the movie then i got pulled into the movie so you know it's just i'm just along for the ride
0: mm-hmm. and this book sex and vanity i i believe i heard you wrote it in four months
1: i did i you know i was actually in the midst of um developing a tv show um a drama series and um i took a hiatus from that and they very kindly gave me, you know, actually they gave me three months. They're like, okay, if you want to take three months to go write this book, go ahead. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll try to do that. And, um, I cheated a bit, you know, I sort of pushed it. I took four.
0: I see. So did that change anything about the, the, the nature of your thinking as you wrote the novel? Because it's one thing to like really think about a thing for two years and then to think about it for only four months. That's, that's a
1: different process I imagine. It, it is a different process. And I think with this book, it was really easy because this was a fresh start. This is something completely new and out of my wheelhouse. You know, with the Crazy Ration, Crazy Rotation trilogy, everything is so loaded. It's a dense book filled with dozens of characters, um, complicated overlapping storylines, flashbacks through time. And then, of course, there's the added baggage of so much of it is based on real people. So much of it is inspired by, by true stories involving family. So I, I had to really navigate all these minefields as I wrote those books to get the story out, but also to do it in a way that doesn't piss anyone off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, here I could take a completely fictional family. And so I, I feel like it was it was very, very sort of freeing to just have fun writing this little book. You know and i really only this was meant to be a novella e.m Forster's novel novella is 190 pages long so that was what i was planning to deliver and i think it actually clocked in at double the length because i veered off course and kept on going as i tend to do when i get into something
0: we have a question uh, uh from samantha who asks can you talk about what it was like to publish a book during the pandemic
1: thanks samantha um it was really kind of a strange and yet very, you know, I think um, satisfying experience. Um, We actually, I was talking to my publishers and we were actually debating on whether or not to release it or to hold it back a year and to release it this summer. But they convinced me that, you know what, it's fine to to release this book in the middle of pandemic. People need the escape. It's, it's not gonna be perceived as tone deaf. And um, and I'm so glad I did, because I, I did hear from so many people that read the book last year, you know, in in June and July that, and took it to the beach. The beach might've been their backyard, um, <laughs> you know, um, but it really did, I think, provide a, a few laughs to some people. So I'm very grateful that happened. It was very strange um, until yesterday, actually, I had never seen Sex and Vanity, the book, in the wild, as I call it, I've never been able to go into a bookstore and see the book. Um, but yesterday, I ventured into Book Soup, my neighborhood bookstore here in, in um, West Hollywood, and was able to see, you know, the paperback in a bookstore for the first time. Um, so that felt nice, and it'd be, you know, I'm looking forward to actually signing a book for someone and actually handing it to them, rather than signing stickers and putting it on books and, and sending it to someone, you know. Yeah. So it's it's been strange, and of course the whole Zoom experience, the whole cloud crowd cloud crowdcast experience. I'd, I'd rather be sitting across from you in your recording booth and, and having a chat, or, know, or on the stage coffee. at the music That's we we usually or, do it on exactly. stage, uh, exactly because not, there's nothing okay. like having a live audience there that I can really respond to. Yeah, um, but but I, I feel that you know we, we have to be grateful for what we have. The fact that we have this, it's been really an amazing tool in helping to connect all of us. Um, During this difficult time,
0: you're listening to a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage with novelist Kevin Kwan. After a quick break, we'll talk about weddings. Many of Kwan's novels, including this one, feature elaborate weddings. We'll learn about the kinds of weddings Kwan likes best after a break. I'm Peter Biello. This is NHPR. I'm Peter Biello, and this is a special broadcast of Writers on a New England Stage, a co production of the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. Today on our virtual stage, novelist Kevin Kwan. We're speaking about his latest novel, Sex and Vanity, the events of which revolve around weddings. I asked him why his novels so often involve weddings.
1: Well, for my novels especially, you know, my novels always involve families. And I think, you know, the the wedding is, is the ultimate family event. You know, weddings really are for families. That's when they come together. And that's when all the shenanigans happen. (laughs) right um and it's operatic you know it's 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 actually a very kind of it's like cheating in a way you know i'm using a very simple structure here to be able to throw a lot of things into the soup but i personally love attending weddings because to me that's the ultimate people watching experience right and so i i sort of experience them and i i write about them um, like like the voyeur that I am, you know? And I, I take my readers along for the ride.
0: Does it matter what kind of wedding, extravagant or pretty humble, or just any wedding at all, so long as you're watching Absol-
1: people? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, readers tend to want the extravagant weddings from me, but personally I find the simplest, um, you know, most modest weddings to be um, my favorite and the most meaningful. One of the nicest weddings I ever went to was held in someone's backyard in a very, very normal suburb in Texas. And it was just full of, so full of love. And there was a little potluck, people brought food and it was just a really lovely affair. At the same time, I've, I've been to, to, to a wedding that took place in three palaces over a week. Um, three and, palaces? Um, yeah, three, count them. Huh. Um, it just got more and more decadent every single night. And that too was fun. You know, I'm, I'm not going to say that wasn't as fun as the backyard country wedding. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's about the people. And ultimately, it's it's about, you know, it's about love. I want to
0: ask a question on behalf of a listener. Um, this one is not specifically related to Sex and Vanity. Aitaj uh, asks, what's your favorite underappreciated novel?
1: That's a really good question because I don't really know what people other people would consider unappreciated. Um, the, the one book that comes to mind first of all is Edith Wharton's The Custom of the Country. Of course, I know Wharton fans, most of them, I would think, love the book, but it's a book I keep recommending to a lot of people who, who you know, haven't seemed to have read it. Um, I believe she wrote it in 1905, some, somewhere around there. It's set in the New York of that era. And if you just change the costumes and change the horse carriages and the taxi cabs and Ubers and cars, the story is, could be present day New York. Um, that's how astute she was in observing New York society. And it's also, I don't know if it's for better or for worse, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed.
0: About um, human nature, human, mean?
1: Yeah. The nature of New York society, you know, I think it's, um, the motivations are still the same. The ambitions are still the same. And so to me, the book is is just so fresh um, and it's hard to believe that she wrote it when she did.
0: We have a question uh, from Melinda who asks, given that most of the Asian American diaspora is not crazy rich, why do you think crazy rich Asians resonated so hard with AAPIs? That's the question from Melinda.
1: You know, that's kind of a hard question for me to answer, I guess, because I think it resonated in so many different ways. Um, and it was, it was such a personal experience, but I think at the heart of it, it's because I was presenting empowered contemporary Asians. And that's not something you see very much, um, in the world of literature, you know, um, I was really kind of showing normalized modern Asians across different spectrums, across different countries. And I think there's something that I felt that a lot of API readers could sort of see and recognize themselves in these families. You know, they might not necessarily have had the same bank accounts, but many of the traditions, the attitudes, um, the families at the heart of it are all the same. You know, we all have sneaky cousins and pretentious uncles and meddling aunts You know and and mothers who worry for us way too much um and so it's related relatable in that way did you get a lot of comments from
0: readers along those lines
1: i did and and um actually even met so many readers who who, would come to me at at readings you know back when we were meeting in public and (laughs) up close and personal you know who would just tell me like how much they related to these characters and, and how great it was to like finally read a book where they could see themselves reflected back, you know, um, that was very meaningful for me.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to ask you about food because we've, we've figured out where you get your, your knowledge of, of clothing and, and designers and art. Uh, but how do you know so much about food?
1: I don't know if i do know so much about food do i maybe I mean, maybe i
0: don't know enough and you you sort of are the yeah. standard bearer but um you've mentioned yeah. i certainly know michael pollan you know um,
1: <laughs> well, I, I just you know i just like to make myself hungry when i'm writing <laughs> and I like to make i like to make my readers hungry as well you know and um i actually like fiction that includes many scenes of eating i like to eat while i read those kind of books. So I try to provide a bit of that in my novels as well. But I think, you know, being born in Singapore helps. You know, Singapore, I always say, was the original foodie country, um, you know, it, just because of where it was, how it was positioned in the world. It was, you know, just sort of this trade route. And so growing up, you know, there were such a multitude of different cuisines, you know, available and and there growing up. And of course, because there's nothing else to do, all you do is eat all day, right? And so my family, we ate five times a day. You know, seriously, we did. We had breakfast, lunch, tea, dinner, and then we would go out for late supper.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And you know, because you sweat a lot and it's so humid, you stay thin. Um <laughs> in this country it's a little harder, you know. In this country, I'm trying to eat a little less these days.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned in your in your book jacket, you're trying to eat less pasta.
1: I really am. Oh. I'm, I'm really, you know, my my doctor really wants me to like. <laughs> I mean, she she would be so happy if I never ate a carb again for the rest of my life, and um, also stop eating um, meat. But I, I, you know, I don't know if I can quite go there. But well, I'm we am trying.
0: Well, we did get a question from a uh, uh, someone uh, who asked about. Uh, legume-based pasta recommendations. If you have any of those, uh,
1: wow, we are I, far from the book at this point. <laughs> totally, legume-based pasta. So, like,
0: yeah, like lent, like red lentil pasta is one thing that that people yeah. eat now, in, in in addition to just the standard pasta, but.
1: I mean, I've, I've certainly seen different variations of, of gluten-free and different types of pastas on menus. And I tend to just right, skip right through them and go straight to the papadelle, you know, or the farfalle. And like, for me, it's, you know, all starch, all wheat all the time. So unfortunately, I have no expertise in that. Um,
0: so Capri must be like a wonderful place for you if you're that much of a fan of pasta.
1: You know, it it is on so many levels. And it's the interesting thing about Capri is that, you know, it... Every region, of course, of Italy has, has different cuisine, right? It, was, it's, it wasn't just one country of just one red sauce cuisine. Um, and, and Capri is the home of the Caprese salad, right? That simple dish of the beautiful sliced mozzarella, fresh Campania tomatoes, nice piece of basil, and olive oil. Um, but they, there's so much more, but it's very, very fresh, simple, rustic island food and incorporating a lot of seafood and the interesting thing is when I go to Capri um, and I eat like a very decadent person when I'm there, you know, because the food is so good and so fresh, I lose weight hmm. every time. Um, so I would love to go back and be on the Capri diet, quite frankly, um, as soon as I can. But I think it says a lot also about eating really fresh farm-to-table food, right? And I think also what they do with meat, what they do with even their pastas, there's a lot less chemicals in them, you know, maybe I'm generalizing, maybe I'm, you know, completely off base, but um, the food is more natural, you know, it's less processed than what we're able to get over here, I think. Um, so farm to table I here
0: is more niche than it would be in, in Europe. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Or maybe everywhere else in the world. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't, um, haven't been able to travel much. But
1: yeah, I can't tell you, you know, I, all I can say is I go there, I eat all I want, and I lose weight. And that is certainly not true here. Huh.
0: <laughs> well, we get a question about uh, locations of your novels from Sue, who who writes, I always appreciate the worldwide locales for your books. Do you have your eyes on a location you
1: haven't written about yet? That's such a great question. So I always have to write about places that I, I I have visited and 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 have personally sort of like breathed the air in the room of the place. Um, I can't ever write about places I've never been to. Um, that's just never how I work. So I would love to visit Mongolia, actually, and um, maybe set a scene there or two. You know, I'd also love to go to Greece. I've never been to Greece. And um See how that sort of inspires, and Egypt. I can keep going, <laughs> but I think those are the big three Lot, at the moment. That lots I, of places that I on really your list. love to visit: Egypt, Mongolia, and Greece.
0: So, but no firm plans for writing about those or any other places.
1: No, no firm plans for those specifically. But you know, Sex and Vanity is the first book in what I'm calling the Cities trilogy. Um, it's a trilogy not linked by story because the story is complete. You know, Lucy's story has ended on the last page of Sex and Vanity, but it's a story linked by cities. And so the first book was, you know, a New York story. The next book will be a London story. And the final book in the trilogy, my hope is to to set it in Paris.
0: Wow. So a uh, Capri, London, and Paris. That's exciting. Yeah. So what's your writing routine like? Are you already started on one of those?
1: I haven't actually, um, but um, my my writing routine has kind of, become very much of a a habit these days. You know, I get up and I'm usually writing in the mornings for about four hours. So, you know, nine to one, whatever it is, you know, and I don't turn on my email. I don't turn on my phone until I break for lunch. Um, And then I'll turn on my phone and answer emails and do the housekeeping, you know, of life. And then I'll go back to writing again around three or four and I'll write for another four hours or so. So I, you know, there's a morning session and a late afternoon into early evening session.
0: Well, we get another question from Samantha who asks, as someone that's trying to break into the publishing world, what advice do you have for new writers?
1: Um, gosh, we could do a whole hour on this. <laughs> you know, I I would say really don't censor yourself and and don't try to create a work that you think is going to be great for the marketplace. Um, write write what you truly want to write right from the heart, Um, you know, and the more authentic you can make your story. I think the more people will end up responding to it and then don't give up. Number two, you know, after you've written this, you know, the the challenge begins to find an agent And, and that is often, you know, even more challenging than actually writing the book, but don't ever give up.
0: Kevin Kwan, this has been lovely. Thank you very much for joining us on Writers on a New England Stage.
1: Absolutely. I I have had such a great time and it's um, it's fun to chat. It's really fun to chat.
0: You you sound like the kind of person I'd love to go uh, restaurant hopping with.
1: You know, (laughs) it's a date. Sounds great. Next time I'm in LA. If
0: I ever make it to LA, I'll I'll, I'll give you a heads up.
1: (laughs) I, you know, it's such a great foodie city. I'd be happy to, you know, Show you some places.
0: That's author Kevin Kwan speaking to me in May as part of Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of the Music Hall in Portsmouth and NHPR. The Music Hall's Executive Director is Tina Sautel. NHPR's President is Jim Schachter. The Music Hall Director of Communications and Community Engagement is Monty Bohannon. NHPR's producer of Writers on a New England Stage is Sarah Plourd. NHPR's director of communications and marketing is Patricia McLaughlin. Itaj Ismailova is NHPR's marketing and communications coordinator. And the Music Hall literary producer is Brittany Wasson. The theme music for Writers on a New England Stage is written and performed by Dreadnought. Additional music for this broadcast by Ketza. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for joining us for Writers on a New England Stage.